compounded on itself because we hadn't calculated a couple of things into our leaving leaving time. So we ended up kind of late and on a very exposed slope that was melting and actively dropping rocks on us and then having to go a corner of a glacier and just be like, nothing fall from above, please. And then wait for it to go cold again and then like sprint and even then an avalanche still came across our tracks ahead of us and um, so that was a that was a really and like got to the top of the pass and kind of like burst into tears like right on sunset it was kind of like oh we've made it through this like really testing like that like it's going to get easier from here although it still had its up, ups and downs. This is Aotearoa Adventures with your host Abigail Hanna the podcast for everything you need to know to travel New Zealand. I talk to photographers, van lifers, moms, students, and everyday Kiwis to hear their inspiring stories from past adventures and to share helpful tips and tricks for your travels. Whether you're visiting Aotearoa for the first time and live on the road, or you work a nine to five and have lived in New Zealand your whole life, you're guaranteed to learn something to plan your next getaway and get a new excitement to explore more of this beautiful country I call home. So grab your hiking boots, hop in the car, and turn up the volume. If you've ever cooked a meal from scratch in the bush, you'd know how challenging it is. Backcountry Cuisine have solved this problem with freeze-dried meals that are lightweight, delicious, nutritious, and so easy to prepare. With breakfast, lunch, dinner, and dessert options, as well as vegetarian, vegan-friendly, and gluten-free meals, they have something for every adventurer. Backcountry Cuisine are my go-to for yummy meals on the trail, and I also keep a stash in the van, just in case. For quick and easy meals for all your outdoor adventures, use the code ABIGAIL for free shipping off your next order. That's A-B-I-G-A-I-L for free shipping off your next Backcountry Cuisine delivery. Head to the link in the description to find out more. Kia ora, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to be sitting down today with Penzi and she's going to tell us all about the Southern Alps Traverse. But before we get ahead of ourselves, would you like to introduce yourself for us, Penzi? Kia ora, I'm Penzi. Um, I'm currently living in Queenstown and basically since I turned 18 and left home I have been trying to do as much outdoors as possible and while I was at university I kept seeing my friends go off and do Southern Alps traverses like one day I'm going to do that. (laughs) That's so cool. Um, Where did you grow up and was adventure part of your childhood as well or was it just in your later years that you got into things like hiking and mountaineering and all the rest of it? I grew up in Wellington um, for yeah my entire childhood. Adventure was a part of our lives growing up, but not to the kind of extremes that I've decided to take it to. Uh, my parents had been really into tramping before they had kids, and then they decided to settle for orienteering, actually. That was my <laughs> family sport growing up. They kind of figured you'd take a tramping trip and put it into a couple of hour. Well, you're supposed to finish with an hour, but, you know, Mum takes a couple of hours sometimes. Um, you fit it into a couple of hours on a Sunday, um, and that was that fitted way better with kind of general life. So it wasn't until I was a teenager that I really got to experience what it was like to actually go tramping, and I was like, oh, this is a lot more fun than just going on. <laughs> yeah, but orienteering was pretty good too. That's really cool. Um, and tell me a little bit about what you do for work and how you've managed to fit in adventures around your schedule. I guess all the way from uni up until now, how have you sort of found time to to get outdoors? Yeah, uh, so I'm currently working as a doctor. Um, really lucky that I've been working in Queenstown Hospital. So it's a great place for adventures with a really great team of people who love adventure too. Basically through university, I made it a huge priority. I Every weekend that I wasn't away in the mountains, I kind of thought weekend wasted. 
I didn't do any partying or drinking. I was just like pure adventure. And I tried to take that attitude to work. And it kind of worked for the first couple of years. And then I kind of hit a year that was like impossible, kind of 80-hour weeks and, mm. absolutely you know, energy, let alone time to get away. And even when I did get away, I was so exhausted that all I wanted to do was turn around and go home. So um, basically that prompted me to quit my job. So I quit my job and I had a year off and I did some of the like, you know, casual jobs that you can do as a doctor, kind of locumed around, mm -hmm. worked at the ski fields, had a great year and culminated that year with um, – yeah, this traverse of the Southern Alps um, and did some travel and things as well in that year. And basically, I don't think I'm ever going full time again. It was worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good point you raised because um, there are a lot of people that work full time and are able to go out m most weekends and that is how they how they do it. Um, but I think um, you're totally right that it can it's not necessarily for everyone and for some people it might be way too much to just be full on five days a week and then full on on your weekends and not getting a break it can sort of lead to a bit of burnout um and yeah probably isn't the best for your mental health although it's it's definitely a bit of a balance because maybe it's worse for your mental health to stay home than to be in the mountains so <laughs> it's a it's a bit of a juggling game isn't it yeah I definitely yeah think it is a, a real balance between I know that I need to go to the mountains for my mental health, Yeah, but also can't go to the mountains and get the most out of it when I am so far gone that I don't have the energy. So mm. it's working hard, but working smart so you can still have the energy to actually go and do the things that you need to do to decompress or else, yeah, you do just burn out and medicine and particularly where the health system is at the moment is, is classic for burning us out and making sure you can't do that because it's always pressure to pick up another shift. Yeah. And that's just, yeah, everyone's desperate. Yeah, that's that's really challenging. Um, where were you for uni that you had access to all of these awesome places? Uh, yeah, so I went to Otago for university specifically because mm -hmm. I wanted to move to the South Island. I joined the Otago University Tramping Club and it was amazing. Just like there was all these people who just wanted to do the same thing as me. So much no, so that I actually got my first degree, so like just a Bachelor of Science in Zoology, and turned around at the end of that and went, I'm not ready to leave yet. So that's why I went back and did medical school. This meant nine years. Oh, wow. Having a great time. Real world is not as not as cool as university. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I think especially um, Canterbury and Otago universities are just so, so awesome for that. Auckland Uni, you don't quite get the quite get the same experience being so close to the mountains. Yeah, and I love that. Um, it's almost part of the lifestyle when you're down in the South Island, isn't it? Yeah, I mean it depends. There are people who come to Otago because they want the party lifestyle, but you know you got to pick and choose. That's also true. And yeah. there's also people who make the most out of Auckland. I've got some like amazingly skilled climbing friends who have come out of Auckland. I'm like, man, I would not have been that good if I was in Auckland. So. Mm. No, that's cool to hear. Um, well, tell me about the Southern Alps Traverse. You had quit your full-time job. You'd taken a year off. Um, how did you come up with the idea to do it? Or how did you know it was the right time as it was something that you'd been wanting to do? Yeah, um, I'm not really sure how I kind of decided it was the right time. But it was. I was kind of thinking, well, what am I going to do for summer? I had applied for a few jobs. Well, actually, that's right. I had applied for some jobs in Antarctica, but also for um, the Antarctic Heritage Trust. Like they do expeditions. Um, for 
explorers and the one last year was going to Antarctica and traversing to the South Pole. And I'd applied for that and interviewed for it, but ultimately didn't end up getting it. And so I was like, right, what can I do instead? And I was like, I'd already kind of mentally prepared that I was going to spend three months doing some sort of expedition. And, you know, one of the things that they kind of flagged with me amongst a few other things is that I didn't actually have any long expedition experience. I was like, right, long expedition experience. <laughs> uh, my friend who was actually overwintering in Antarctica at the time, and she had been like, oh, yeah, I, I, I feel a real need to see some trees. I'll come with you. That's awesome. So I was like, sweet, start planning the expedition. So I was like, you know, working up the ski field, but um, it's kind of a bit boom and bust up the ski field sometimes. Sometimes you're real busy. Other times you're having a chill time, you go out skiing. And I was kind of using some of the time that it could have been out skiing to kind of just sit there and whittle away at like route planning and food and stuff. So I kind of started planning in really about July, August and started with like the route. And I was like, I'm going to do this and my friend's going to come with me. And actually that friend, Sarah, didn't end up actually joining me for any sections oh, wow. of the traverse. We went to Antarctica and kind of went... I need people. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, fair enough. So, um, but I kind of had arranged a whole bunch of other people to join me for various sections along the way. Um, and just, yeah, it just kind of evolved from there. There was, yeah, a lot of planning that went into it. And I still didn't feel ready when I started, but it all came together. That's really cool. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit more about some of the planning that went into it. I imagine it must be quite complex with where you're staying, what you're eating, what you're taking with you. Um, and maybe before that, how many months are we talking? How many weeks or maybe days is it for the <laughs> for the traverse? Um, it ended up being eighty five days okay. in the end. Yeah, I think I'd planned for kind of yeah. I think I had food for like ninety ish or something kind of lined up. Um, but I ate pretty much all the food. Like by the end of it, I was so hungry. I was like, I'm going to eat everything. <laughs> um, but yes, I guess I started with a route and I basically just, you know, took my dream list. You know how we all have these dream lists mm. of like all possible trips that you'd ever get to in a life. I took my dream, dream list and I plotted it on a map. And I was like, right, that's really not helpful. <laughs> um, so I then refined it a bit and went for a more sensible kind of route that was up the Southern Alps doing bits that I wanted to do that were on that dream list and other bits that just looked really, really cool and like plotted this fantastic A-line. And initially I had it going all the way from um, the like south coast of Fiordland, like all the way up to Fairwells, but but kind of as timing and plans kind of came along, I kind of realized that I'd be having to rush to get through Fiordland and that meant kayaking up the lakes. And I was like, well, if you're kayaking up the lakes, is it really worth doing Fiordland? And I knew that I needed to get to Mount Cook at a certain time to kind of take advantage of the snow still being around and some of the passes and things get cut off. So it was kind of timing wise, I made a decision to um, move Fiordland to a further adventure. So I spent two to three months doing an epic Fiordland at some point, oh. South Island. But for now, I've done the Southern Alps part of the traverse. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so once I kind of had a route and then had narrowed it down and been like, okay, not the Orland section, I was then kind of going through and reading the route descriptions and looking at the maps for each stage and kind of being, okay, how long is it going to take me to get from here to there? And okay, this whole section between, you know, Haast and Mount Cook, say, is, you know, 12 days, okay, so 12 days plus X amount of days for bad weather, so, okay, I need to carry this much on this section and breaking it down kind of day by day and, like, food or whatever um and then at the same time so I did buy some food but I actually ended up 
making and dehydrating a fair amount of my own food um, because I kind of like doing that and it's slightly cheaper than buying all the dehydrate. So, mm, yeah. I was also like dehydrating all the food and kind of packing everything and then emailing people to be like, okay, cool. Like, can you help me like drop my food in here and come with me on this big adventure? Everyone come with me. I need people to join me. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of different parts that kind of just constant crazy busyness organizing. And I've got a couple of like quite large documents that are like huge logistical planners that make sense pretty much only to me at this point. You know, I like started with this logistical plan and went, oh no, that doesn't, I don't like the way that that's formatted now. So I'm going to move all the information to this other spreadsheet. Yeah. So there's a lot of that that kind of happened. I feel like part of the joy is in the planning, isn't it? I'm a bit of a spreadsheet person as well. And it kind of drives my husband a bit crazy, but I'm like, we could make a spreadsheet with this. Yeah. <laughs> let's put this in a spreadsheet yeah that's awesome to secretly loving logistics like it's (laughs) something I very much enjoy and this was an ultimate logistics challenge so it was it was really cool to do all the logistics and then there was Mm. you know okay cool I'm going to want this piece of gear here and this piece of gear here and okay do I have a way to get them from there to there or do I have to carry it and cool we're going to fly the skis into Mount Cook and meet them here and and then it's like okay cool we have to make sure we can actually get there then and yeah it's all fun yeah, that's a lot of moving parts to have to be thinking about. Um, what time of year were you doing this? So I set off, I think, on the 31st of October. Um, so, yeah. quite, you know, very, like, you know, the ski field had just closed and yeah. off we go like a week later um, and started in some pretty horrendous weather with some low snow and just a lot of misery. Um <laughs> But that was fine. And then, yeah, went right through to, I think I finished on the 27th of January. And I had a okay. job starting on the 30th. So I, I had a deadline, <laughs> had to be finished. Yeah, that's definitely cutting it a little bit close. I hope you did absolutely nothing for the next three days and put your legs up and relaxed with cucumbers on your eyes. <laughs> I would have liked to do that, but there was a lot of logistics involved in getting home after that. So and getting ready for the job. And getting the cat back from where he'd gone for three months. Oh, fair enough. Tell me a little bit about, were you carrying a tent? Were you staying in huts? How did that side of it work? Yeah. Um, I did carry a tent the whole way. There was kind of the way it worked out. There was always one or two um, bits that needed, like one or two nights per section that definitely required the tent. And the tent gave me kind of freedom. And it was not the lightest tent, um, but it was a two-person tent because I always kind of had people joining me for various sections. So overall, though, I spent so it was eighty-five days out, and I spent sixty-five days actually staying in a hut and twenty in the tent. Okay. So I carried the tent for not a huge amount of use, but yeah, it was it was a safety thing, and there was always a few nights I did need it. So yeah, that's crazy. I didn't realize that there were so many huts all through the Southern Alps. Yeah, like looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, that that's a lot of hut time, and I was like, oh, I didn't realize I stayed in hut that much, but yeah. like, there are like, and you can link them up if you want. It's not that hard, which is yeah, cool. that's really cool. How many sections of this um, journey were quite technical? Um, you mentioned you had skis. Did you have to take alpine gear with you as well? What did that sort of look like? Yeah, um, it all varied. Um, the terrain is constantly changing in the Southern Alps. Um, because we started off reasonably early in the season, so like October going into November and in snow, we carried 
like um, AVI gear for like the first section, the second section, we ended up rerouting slightly and not taking the rope, but still carrying the AVI gear. The third section I ended up being solo, so but I had to carry the AVI gear because I was meeting someone. Fourth section, I had we had AVI gear and mountaineering gear, but then we had to turn around mountaineering objective because there was too much avalanche danger and then the, that led into the next section which was the Mount Cook section so that was full mountaineering gear plus we were picking up our skis on like day two of that and so that was yeah full um, then full like ski mountaineering gear basically and we carried that through the whole section which was quite a long section and then the next section we was going over the gardens and we we're supposed to take the skis over the gardens as well but we had bad weather and so we were going to be we decided to leave the skis behind in a remote backcountry hut um, and they found their own way out. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about that. That sounds yeah, wild. Uh, zero invasive predators, Zip, who um, run, you know, basically predator trapping and um, 1080 operations uh, over on the coast and they pulled our ski gear out for us, which was amazing. Yeah, and so then we basically continued with just mountaineering gear over that section through to the Rakaia River. And after that point, I didn't really have friends with me for as long anymore. And I was over most of the technical. Like there was still scrambling and stuff, but mm-hmm. beyond that point, like the snow had kind of pretty much run out. So no more AVI gear, no more skis, no more ropes, no more mountaineering gear. So things got a bit. And I think, yeah, I carried crampons and ice axes still through to. Arthur's Point and from Arthur's Point I think I dropped all of it at Arthur's Point I had been debating whether or not I'd take another an ice axe ongoing but by that stage there was no snow left so yeah by the time you're hitting late December January you're probably all right yeah yeah I hit Arthur's Point on Christmas yeah yeah that's that's really cool um did you enjoy the parts where you I mean Arthur's Point okay yeah Arthur's did you enjoy the parts of the journey that you were doing solo or did you enjoy the parts with your friends or what were the what were the sort of pluses of each of those? It was a really big step for me to go solo. I've okay. always kind of seen going with friends as or going with people as an important safety kind of thing as well as mm. it's just really fun to be in the outdoors with lots of people. Um, I haven't hadn't really before this trip done much in the way of solo. I think I'd like done a couple of solo overnighters, and they were very very tame trips to yeah. long tracks. So this was kind of like a new. Suddenly there were big long sections off track by myself, um, which was a kind of new experience. And it was actually really cool to get out there and do that and kind of have like challenge myself and then do those challenges. Um, so that was really cool, but I certainly, and I loved that experience, but I certainly really, really did love the times that I had friends joining me. Like it's, it's very different with people and it's a lot of fun with people. Like mm. it will matter. Like, I think that's, that's one of the like things that I took away. It's people aren't just there for safety. People actually make mm. a lot of fun being in the hills with people. And I actually, um, part of what I did with this trip, cause I'm, you know, often just go with people. I know part of what I did for this trip is actually opened it up and I posted it on a few Facebook groups. And it's like anyone who wants to join me. And so I had That's quite cool. three people kind of who I'd not done much with before or one in one case I'd never even met him before. We'd yeah. literally just 
on Facebook and then he showed a bit of remote heart and we went on a picture. Actually, I had like four people who I hadn't done anything with before. And yeah, it was actually really cool kind of doing that and just meeting people for the first time in a remote backcountry hut when you're about to go and traverse over the gardens. And yeah, it was really cool. Um, so I don't know, like I really enjoyed the time with friends, but the time of solo was kind of really good for providing myself with a challenge and mm. ended up going over a few things where I was kind of like, oh, this is kind of scary solo. I wish I was with people. And then I'm like, well, nothing would be different if you were with people. It's not like you'd be on a rope if you were with people. The terrain's, yeah. you know, you'd still be solo scrambling it. So people aren't, you know, all like it would be nice to have them there because it's nice to be with people, but it would just be like a psychological boost. So I can do this. I can get yeah. over this by myself. Yeah. It doesn't matter. So, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I think it's quite brave to sort of plan an expedition like this, knowing that you wouldn't have someone with you the whole time. Um, I, I don't even know if I've done a solo overnight. I don't think I have. I haven't. I haven't done much solo, but um, it's definitely something I want to do more of because I I feel like being with yourself um and just having that headspace where you're not constantly bombarded because we're just like stimulated all the time aren't we with social media and when you're with other people and work and it's just like constant and I just find that like even this afternoon I went for a walk down my street and just noticing things along the way um that you normally wouldn't stop and see because I'm usually driving along the street not walking (laughs) yeah I've noticed that since I've been back I've been working fairly solidly and haven't really been getting away for weekends as much. Mm. And I really noticed just how much the phone and the social media invades my time to the point that I've actually had a, started implementing days where if I don't go away, I literally turn my phone off for a day and just have a day yeah. away from it. Um, yeah. But it's hard to do because everyone expects that if you're not away that you're available by phone. <laughs> yes, but No. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it's really important to have those boundaries in place when you need them. Um, What part of your Southern Alps Traverse was one of the most challenging that sort of stands out to you? Um, I've got two that kind of stand out. And one was um, in Mount Cook and it was Pioneer Pass and it was going to be the most technically challenging um, section of the trip. And it was the most technically challenging section of the trip. And then it compounded on itself because we hadn't, calculated a couple of things into our leaving leaving time so we ended up kind of late and on a very exposed slope that was melting and actively dropping rocks on us and then having to go a corner of a glacier and just be like nothing fall from above please and then wait for it to go cold again and then like sprint and even then an avalanche still came across our tracks ahead of us and wow um, so that was a that was a really and like got to the top of the pass and kind of like burst into tears like right on sunset it was kind of like oh we've made it through this like really testing that like it's going to get easier from here although it still had its ups and downs but I actually think the most challenging section of the trip was um day six and you know it was the first really beautifully sunny day all we did was walk up the dark valley it was not hard (laughs) but I like got to the hut and I was like freaking out about the next day and the next day was the first time that we were going to do something like a little bit technical and that's because the first section of the trip had ended up being rerouted onto track because of all of the fresh snow and everything so we hadn't really done anything challenging yet so that was going to be the first technical day and it was like it was well within what I was capable of doing but 
you know, I was kind of like suddenly just not seeing that day, but seeing this entire massive adventure and all of these technical challenges and all of these opportunities that I'd have to fall and die. And like all of that was just suddenly like sitting at Dart Hut and I'm like, I can't do this. I just, no, can't do this. We're not doing this. Can't do this. And I just had a bit of a freak out. Um, texted like out on the inreach a few people who kind of had beforehand just been like, if you need us, we're here. And so I kind of had a couple of like good messages back and forth with yeah, them. Yeah. Um, particularly Maddie Whitaker had, you know, she had done it. She's previously done a traverse and, and found it really psychologically challenging. So she was really understood exactly what that was for me at that moment. Um, and I basically just shrunk my mission at that point. It was get over the hill the next day. We did end up taking the technical day, not the shortcut way around. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to finish this section. And I really wanted to finish the section because I was meeting up with dad at the end of the section and he was going to come join for a couple of days. I was like, right, I've got to finish the section. Then I'm going back to Wanaka, which is where I was living at the time. And I'm like, then I'm going to like review. Then I'll decide if I'm going on or not. And, you know, there's nothing riding on it. So if I decide not to go on, that doesn't matter. So... I think day six was the biggest challenge and I've got through that. So yeah, so day seven, the next day, the really technical day and it did not go smoothly, but we got there and like every day after that, there were still some really hard bits in that stage, but I got to the end of it and yeah, I wanted to keep going, even though I was starting the next bit, you know, up the Landsborough Valley, which is a, you know, a big, massive name, Landsborough, it's like transalpine, like place to go and I was starting up the Landsborough solo um so that was quite daunting but I was like no I do want to do this so that was the point I think where I decided I was going to finish the traverse Mm. I think um I think it's good when we have those hesitations because we are all human and at the end of the day our body's just trying to look after us um and I don't know it's it's good to have that cautious mindset but it's also good to be able to push past it and realize when it's a when it's a block and when it's like I don't know there's there's actual fear and there's like just psychological mental blocks right um and it's about knowing the difference and being able to push through yeah but also not not putting too much pressure on yourself and I love that you when you got to Wanaka you were gonna reassess and see if you did want to keep going um I think that's that's really cool and yeah, nothing, nothing was riding on it. And it's cool that, that you also saw that. And I'm really excited that you wanted to keep going because it sounded like an amazing adventure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm stoked to keep going, but equally, you know, if I had made the decision to stop at that point, it would have been the right decision. And yeah, that's, yeah. absolutely. And I think it's, it is really important to listen to the little internal voice that says sometimes, no, not today, because yeah, I've not listened to that a couple of times and they are all of the times I've ended up in trouble in the mountains. So mm. Always listen to the little internal voice. It knows. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, on the flip side of that, what was one of the absolute highlights of this trip? What um, were the moments that took your breath away um, and the ones that you'll just sort of hold on to in your memory for years to come? I reckon that, so the section that we were supposed to go over the gardens but couldn't because the weather wasn't great like that section there were four of us so me and like three other friends and one of them was my friend Suji who come with me through the Mount Cook section and we'd had five days in a hut where we had basically stopped talking but then she continued <laughs> on um and that was that was really good like really cool for our friendship because otherwise we might have entered a little bit grumpy at each other which wouldn't mean oh no <laughs> by Adam who was this dude who'd 
Facebooked me who had never met and we we're just like, yeah, sure, come meet us for this real hard section of the, the trip yeah. with your skis. And um, another friend of mine, Emily, and that stage, that whole stage, even though it wasn't what we'd like initially planned, which is just what it, how it goes with traversing, was just amazing. And I just remember this little bit at the end of the Lyle Glacier. And I like approached them and we're taking our crampons off to start the moraine bashing. And I hate moraine now. <laughs> I'm over <overwhelmed laughs> for life. But we're just like sitting there. And Emily was trying to find the word for slices of bread. And she literally been <laughs> calling them flaps of bread. <laughs> it was the most hilarious thing. So like all like four of us were just cracking up for about five minutes on the bottom of the glacier over flaps of bread. And it was just, it was just a really, really great moment. And I think like the next day they walked out down the Rakaia and I took off on my own. And that was, it was quite daunting because I was heading over to the West Coast by myself. Um, mm. But I just like that day, like that moment was hilarious. And that day was just like a real sense of achievement. Like I kind of, I think getting to that Rakaia and getting to the point where they were going out and I was going on, even though it was really hard to part with them, it was like that actually felt more kind of like I had achieved something yeah yeah somehow like that was my achievement point for the trip which was really interesting um oh that's really cool not super you know there's nothing really different about that day but it was yeah it was just in that moment was just hilarious (laughs) yeah no that's such a funny story I was trying not to laugh the whole time you were sat telling it but um... (laughs) It it is funny the moments that sort of stick, isn't it? Um, I love that so much. Um, were there any parts of the traverse that followed the Te Araroa Trail? I followed the Te Araroa Trail for all of half a day. Okay, it was so, always my backup. No one knew. <laughs> it was always my backup. I was always kind of like, "Hey, look, if I'm not feeling it, mm. the way to finish this is get on the Te Araroa Trail. You'll feel secure." You can just walk all the way. It'll be absolutely fine. But I actually didn't touch the Te Aroa Trail until um, I got to Nelson Lakes. And was it? Okay, yeah. I think Waiau Pass, I think. It's the most challenging pass on the Te Aroa Trail. Mm. And so I came over two passes. Oh, I'd have to look them up. Let me quickly look at them. Yeah, <laughs> I that's came over good. three passes, including Waiau that day. I'll just look them up. Um, yeah, so I came over Durval Pass, Thompson Pass, and then joined um, the Tiaro at the base of the Waiau Pass. And I hadn't seen anyone for a few days, and I could see all these people like trekking up the Waiau Pass. Mm. I was like, people, I can't <laughs> wait to see people. So then, yeah, and so I followed um, over the Waiau Pass and down to Blue Lake Hut and spent a night at Blue Lake Hut. And it had been like fairly windy and a bit like not that nice weather a couple of days kind of going through those passes. Um, and so the hut was packed with people who had not crossed the pass that day because they were worried about the weather and fair enough like cross pass when you're comfortable with the conditions and everyone's comfort level was different yeah um so it was like it went from no one to like there is this packed hut and you will sleep on the floor (laughs) it was really kind of cool and then like the next day I immediately branched out went over moss pass so off the tiaroa again Mm. and like and in an empty valley like right next to the tiaroa which is just this highway of yeah yeah that's wild because I'd been to Blue Lake Hut previously before the Te was really really a big thing and it's so changed it's everything in that area is so changed by it being there and it's yeah it's interesting 
Yeah, that's super interesting. Was it this past summer as well that you had done this traverse? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, because I think um, it's it was one of the sort of highest numbers on the Te Araroa that they've had in quite a while, um, probably because of COVID and things like that. But it sounded like it was definitely a highway this past summer. Yeah, you kind of only expect it to grow from there, but yeah, probably needs some support because it's yeah, it's quite popular and yeah, it's yeah, like the hut's not quite built for that. And obviously, with this, those pristine lakes there, it's how do we protect that area while making it like available for people to go mm. to see because it is stunning. Well, do you have any advice for people that um, maybe do have a couple of more technical skills and want to follow in your footsteps and do something like the Southern Alps Traverse? Um, Yeah, what's your advice for picking a route and all the bits in between? Yeah, I don't know. Just do what you want to do, basically. Like, you know, start (laughs) looking at a map, pick out what looks interesting to you, make your A route, make it ambitious, figure out, you know, what would be really cool if you could do that and... Like there are whole sections of my A route that just didn't happen for one reason or another. So be be flexible, you know, have your A route, but have your B and your C and also have the ability like have maps with you so you can actually reroute last minute because that actually also happened too. You know, you might find that A, B, C and D are also not options. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what now? But I don't know, just kind of dream big. Like, Mm. yeah, plot your A route. And I've got sections to go back and do with my a route there, there was stuff that was so cool that my friends like we have to go back and do that and I'm like yeah we have to go back and do that so yeah, yeah life some point maybe it'll happen that's really cool and I also love that you got to share some sections of your journey with your dad um were there other members of your family that had joined you for, for other parts um no it was just dad so he came in he came and met us in the uh, Wilkin so mm-hmm. I was going with a friend, Mads, at that point. And so Dad came and met us in the Wilkin and we went up Siberia Valley over Gillespie Pass um, and out oh. young river. And, yeah, that was really cool. Um, there was still snow around. And after the last trip I did with Dad, he swore he was never using crampons again. <laughs> <laughs> he had to bring crampons and he did use the crampons and he was <laughs> fine. Um, and then he came and met me. So both my parents came and met me at the end of the trip and that's awesome coming out of boulder lake off the dragon's teeth traverse and um we biked from there round to farewell spit so dad biked with me mum drove and then for a day walk just the three of us out onto farewell spit as far as you're allowed to walk before you have to turn back so yeah that's really cool and what a special way to sort of end 80 85 days of walking almost all the length of the south island <laughs> Um, tell me about what's coming up next for you. I know you mentioned Fiordland is a big trip that you want to do at some point. Um, and what about Antarctica? Have you got something lined up now that you've got some long distance expedition experience as well? Um, yeah, Fiordland at some point, it's not happening this summer. Unfortunately, there's just a bit too much else going on. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I've, Basically, we'll probably need to be earning some money over summer. Um, that's partly because I'm about to go travel overseas for seven weeks. So self yeah, overseas travel. <laughs> um, but Fjordland will definitely happen at some point um, for yeah, a couple of months, three months maybe. depends. I'll just plan the most epic route I can and then see how long it will take. Um, yeah, and yeah, Antarctica, 
nothing's happening on the Antarctic front yet. Like that trip with um, the Heritage Antarctic Heritage Trust, they run inspiring explorers every year, but that's probably the only time they'll go to the South Pole. Um, they do have so, an amazing trip coming up, but it's it wasn't wasn't one I wanted to do. Um, I'll just have to see what comes up with them. But hey, maybe there'll be another exciting opportunity with them at some point. And in the meantime, I've been applying for jobs in Antarctica. I haven't been successful yet, but I've had a lot of positive feedback. So maybe in the next season or two, that'd be really, really cool to get stuck in. Um, yeah, I think with Antarctica, it's persistence. Persistence is key. And at some point, I'm like, yeah, okay, you've been persistent enough. So flying yeah. and hopefully I'll get there at some point because it's it's a really cool place and I really, really do want to go down there. Um, and it, yeah, it'd be really cool to go and be working or on an expedition. Yeah, absolutely. I know that they take a lot of sort of like skilled people. Um, and as a doctor, I'm sure that with your persistence, you'll definitely be able to get a role there. And that would, it sounds incredible. Um, I had someone on the podcast talk about an Antarctica trip because I decided that it's kind of like the adopted part of New Zealand. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was um, long, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was with Chris. Um, yeah, and it just and sounds amazing. Been, been through, um, Gorge River, met his parents, met Bean Sprout a couple of times. Oh, that's awesome. That's very cool. Um, well, I think this brings us to the end of the end of the episode. Um, yeah, do you is there anything I've missed? <laughs> um, no, nothing. I mean it's it's really hard to summarize like an entire like eighty five day long traverse of its Southern Alps in like any length of time, which is pretty much why I haven't like I kind of got off it and threw myself into work and then haven't really looked at my photos or started any sort of trip writing and I did film sections along the way and hey maybe I'll do something with the footage at some point but yeah I just it's so hard to like people keep asking for like the summary or the highlights I'm like I don't have them I don't know they <laughs> decompressed that yet um so yeah it is yeah it's hard to know exactly what to but I feel like we covered a reasonable amount of the trip. and Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate you um, yeah, sharing those stories. And that's what I love about um, having a podcast and long form content, because you get to hear a few more of those details and those nitty gritty and those hilarious moments um, and the bits that were challenging, which you can't quite squeeze into a photo or a video or an Instagram post or whatever that looks like. So I yeah I've I've loved listening to um what what that journey looked like for you how it came about um and yeah it sounds like a very fun logistical puzzle <laughs> um well where can people find you on socials if they want to connect with you um when you're ready to share some of your photos and videos where can they sort of follow along and yeah see some of your future adventures as well yeah, um, there is definitely stuff always going up, but it's at the moment it's it's old stuff that's going up on my social media because I'm a little bit behind on my photos, but it will have been. I'm sure there's lots of us in the same boat. I can definitely speak for myself. <laughs> yeah, so I'm on uh, Instagram as uh, Penzi D. Um, and then I also have a photography website, uh, which is southernalpsphotography.com, uh, which has pretty much yeah all of my trips and travel kind of going up and slightly longer forms slightly more slightly more storytelling um than instagram yeah. stuff um i'd also love to sell some photos <laughs> i've sold one <laughs> but yeah I'm working on that slowly well that's awesome and i'll make sure that there's links to um both your instagram and your photography page in the description i 
definitely might go pop over and have a little bit of a look because um, I'd love to see some of your alpine alpine photography. Um, and yeah, thank you so much, Penzi, for sharing your story with us. Um, it's been really awesome. What an incredible 85-day adventure. I have so much admiration for Penzi and what she's accomplished. It takes a lot of skill and experience to be able to start to plan and map out an expedition like that one. And then it takes a lot of courage to follow through and complete the whole traverse. If you'd like to see the exact route that Penzi took, I've included a link to her GPS tracking in the description. And for some other epic traverses and multi-day expeditions, you might love episode 33 about the 45th parallel traverse with Tanya. Or episode 17 about enchaining New Zealand's 3,000 meter peaks with Alistair and Hamish. Both of those expeditions were the first of their kind. I can't wait to see you back next week. Thank you so much for tuning in and coming along for the ride. If you loved the show and enjoyed listening, please take the time to leave a review on Apple or Spotify. I would also love to connect with you, so send me a DM on Instagram or leave me a voice message. And I can't wait to see you next time. Until then, keep adventuring.